It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Two of our favorite Olympic sporting moments have centered around the wonderful sport of hockey. We were both there, and we've mentioned it once, twice, maybe a million times, at the Deodoro in Rio in 2016, when the main BBC News on BBC One had to be delayed as Kate Richardson-Walsh and her brilliant team defeated the Netherlands to win Olympic gold. It was a shootout win as well. Our interviews by the bins afterwards remain legendary. More on that coming up. I'm Michael. And I'm John, and this is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy, the behind-the-scenes conversation of British sport. And in this case, behind the bins. The previous Olympic moment was I was a kid, and I know Michael was as well, hearing Barry Davis utter those immortal words, where were the Germans, frankly, who cares, as the men's team won Olympic gold in 88. So it goes without saying, we are incredibly excited about Paris 2024. It's less than a year away, so let's find out more about it. My name's Nick Pink. I'm Chief Executive of England and Great Britain Hockey, and absolutely delighted to join you. Nick, hockey is just one of those quintessential Olympic sports, isn't it? Every four years, we can really get behind two teams going for medals at the Olympic Games. It is, 100%. And, and what's great is that that level that you talk about, the men's and women's at the elite point, runs right through the sport. So we've got equal participation of men and women at the community and grassroots level. Um, we see it run through our organisation, our administration, where we've got aspirations to get there on the coaching side of things and we're, we're making some good progress. So the beauty of the sport is played out at that Olympic Games moment every four years where you see men and women competing on that equal path for that gold medal, hopefully, as you just played back in your introduction from 2016 and 1988. Yeah, that is the history for the men, 88. We all remember Sean Curley and others from 2016. The women, Maddie Hinch, unbelievable. Your job, though, now is with less than a year to go to prepare two teams, hopefully, for the next Games and, and making more momentous historical moments. Look, 100%. And, you know, off the back of Tokyo as well, which was, you know, such a different Olympic Games for so many different reasons. 
Um, you know, COVID's still very much part of our lives. You know, we're, we're all recovering from that still and we're still getting through that. But, but what opportunity Paris provides for us to showcase the sport of hockey back on that global stage, back in the Olympic point. And the teams are making good progress. Um, the men have just come off the back of the European Championships. The men came second to the Dutch. It was a, it was a real ding-dong of a game. Um, a bit like you experienced in 2016 by those bins. We need to come back to that conversation shortly. Um, but just in terms of you know, the impact that that can have, and, and we know those special moments, and, and hockey's been part of those special Olympic moments over the last 20, 30, 40 years. There's a real excitement leading into Paris for us. Um, yeah, men making good progress at the Europeans, women doing some really good things. And we know they are hardened competition tournament players. And there's a real nice mix of um, a few players that have experienced a few games now and those coming to, to, the, to the first games. I was going to ask that, Nick. Is there ever a time where we can have a level where actually the men and women are competing at, at the same level with the ambition of winning those medals? We, we mentioned '88 and then 2016, but they were they were on a different level, and and the women have dominated with Commonwealth gold last year, um, and obviously success in, in Tokyo. Look, absolutely. You know, we aspire for both to be top three in the world. We've definitely um, aimed for that um, in those sort of four year cycles leading into the Olympic Games. And I think we're about as close as we've been for a number of years, to be honest, John. So looking at looking at how the men have really raised their level in recent years, and we've seen that uh, World Cup at the beginning of the year, they just missed out to, to, to Germany. You were just talking about the Germans in relation to 88 again. Um, but we just missed out on, on, on shootouts uh, to them in the, in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. We beat them in the semifinal this time at the European Championships. Um, the top four European teams sit in the sort of top five, top six in the world. So it's a really competitive competition just a few weeks ago. And all those teams beat each other on the way to England playing Netherlands in the final. So we're, we're competing at a global level now, which is really encouraging. We had a really good pro league series, which involves the top nine nations in the world. We came second in that as well. Um, so we're starting to see a really positive trajectory on the men's side. The women, as I say, that they, they perform well in tournaments. They have traditionally done so. We saw that at, in Tokyo picking up bronze. We saw that last year, as you mentioned, with the Commonwealth Games getting gold and beating Australia. So, you know, we we, we feel that we're getting to a point now where, you know, from a level, we're, we're getting to a point where both the men and women are able to compete and, and compete for medals and hopefully gold medal leading into next year. And have we qualified yet? Not yet. <laughs> So um, I, can, I can talk you through the qualification process. Um, and yeah, like, like any international federation, it does change sometimes, as you probably experienced uh, with other sports that you probably interviewed. But the Europeans is the most comp competitive continental competition in, in the world because of just what I've said there, the four, four of the top six in the world compete in, in Europe. So you have to win the Europeans to qualify. You know, my disappointment was was high for the lads that just missed out against Netherlands, even more so knowing that, you know, the budget impact of getting to an Olympic qualifier was there too. Um, so, yeah, Olympic qualifiers take place in January. So there's two 18 men's tournaments, two 18 women's, and the top three from each of those 18 competitions qualify to the Olympics. So there's another six spaces for the men, another six spaces for the women, if that makes sense. So, yeah, mid-January, we'll be heading off um, and we'll be competing in those qualifiers. So uh, no worries about what your New Year's resolution Correct. will be at 100%. the end of this year. Um, we were at Bisham Abbey at the invitation of UK Sport and the UK Sports Institute. 
and we were speaking to the CEO Sally Monday, who obviously was your your predecessor. Yep. And she said to us that we had the simplest sports system in the world in the UK. It from the outside looking in doesn't feel like that. Can you tell us the structure of how you as Great Britain hockey come together for an Olympic Games where we have England hockey, Scotland hockey, Wales, etc. as the home nations? Yeah, of course. And I'm glad the simplicity of that message was mentioned by Sally. I'll, I'll let her explain that uh, in, in simple ways. But what we have is the benefit of being England, Scotland and Wales for the majority of our time. But then we compete as Great Britain at the Olympic Games. So we have a, an agreement in place between the three nations, which essentially means that England plays um, a double role. So we play England and Great Britain. And what we've learned as we've adapted that, Michael, is that we would pretty much run the GB programme full time so that what it doesn't feel is if it's a, an England and a Great Britain programme and the GB and then an England programme again. So from a performance perspective, the best athletes in England, Scotland and Wales come together in that GB form. And then there are opportunities to participate as England in Europeans, World Cups, as there is for Wales and for Scotland in those opportunities, as well as the Commonwealth Games. What that provides is those athletes, particularly in Wales, Scotland and England, to compete at that global level. And then the best athletes compete for Great Britain. It's not without some of its challenges, of course, but but that's essentially the, the simplistic way of, of kind of talking through how that works. So I sometimes have a couple of hats on, but um, yeah, no, on the whole, it works really well. And we have really good collaboration with our colleagues in Scotland and Wales around it too. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the challenges of how you then integrate players from England, Wales and Scotland together and how long you get as Great Britain to prepare for the Olympic Games? Because that is essentially, certainly as far as the viewing public are concerned, is where you're going to be judged. Correct. And, um, and you know, I think that's where playing that sort of four-year programme at that performance point is really important. But we also embed it within the talent structures. So as those young players start to develop and get through age group and then ultimately into what we call our development programme, um, just enables players to transition quickly and effectively into the into being part of a, a, a GB programme rather than a, a national one. It's it's never straightforward because, of course, you have to have a hub, and our hub is at Bisham, as you were saying. Um, and so there's always travel, there's, there's accommodation to work out, there's overnights to work out with some amazing families in the local area that, that put people up above their garages and things, you know, to, to help out and all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, the commitment of the athletes is staggering. And, and we can see it now because take the Europeans that I've just mentioned, Wales participating at the European level, they drew with Germany three all in their first game. It's the first game of the competition for Germany men and, and Wales pushed them all the way. And actually at the end, we're probably a bit unlucky not to, to get a win against them. So if we get the opportunities right, if we provide the right opportunities for each of those athletes coming through, then that's only going to strengthen our position as Great Britain. Do any of the players bring the wrong kit? Uh, no, we make sure that definitely doesn't happen. <laughs> Particularly for our partners and sponsors, that's really important. Sometimes the staff do, so we have a we have a couple of backups in the office just to make sure, John. But um, but you know it, it's it's a good point. And sometimes when I see them, so Rupert Shipperley, for example, and Jacob Draper, part of the GB program as well as playing for Wales. So when I see them at European Championships, I've I've got to remember as well as they do too. So. Um, yeah, there's, there's bits like that, but hey, it, it's pretty common in Olympic sport and Paralympic sport. You know, there's there's different models that work in different sports in different ways. But on the on the whole, we all work towards that model. And talking of kit, you've got a brand new kit partner, uh, a new deal that you've uh, signed. 
yes, Mizuno. We've been with Adidas for 14 years. They're obviously a Team GB partner, but we went out for a tender process earlier this part of the year. Um, and yeah, Mizuno um, really impressed and came through as, as our preferred partner. So we're looking forward to working with them. I just want to pick you up on that because one of the big landmarks as you head towards an Olympic Games or a Commonwealth Games is the unveiling of the kit and then you meet the athletes at, at kitting out. Do athletes care what they're wearing and, and how have you in hockey specifically, certainly around women's hockey, have been an organisation that has really pushed to make athletes care and know that the kit that they are wearing is right for them and the sport that they are playing? It's a really, really good question and very topical. Um, it's It really does matter, actually, particularly, um, I say particularly on the women's side of the sport, but actually both sides of the sport, because, you know, I guess traditionally it's something we've always taken for granted um, as, a, as a system. I don't think that's a hockey point, that's not necessarily a hockey point, just generally across the board. But look, all the changes across sport in the last 10, 15, 20 years, look at coloured clothing coming into cricket in the last 20, 30 years, you know, you, you look, we look back at images, you know, we're talking about 88 and, and the Seoul Olympics, look back at cricketing images around that time, you don't see any coloured clothing, you don't see a, a white ball, you don't see all those sorts of things. But in terms then of hockey and what that means, particularly on the women's front, is feeling comfortable in what they're participating in and making sure that that doesn't harm their performance. We saw the changes obviously with Wimbledon this year in terms of the, the women's provision of kit there too. So what we look to do, um, we changed our regulations nationally at the beginning of the year, which basically enables um, female athletes in hockey at every level of the sport to, to wear whatever they feel most comfortable in. So if it's a pair of shorts, a skirt, a skirt a legging, whatever they feel comfortable in wearing, our regulations allow for that. And what we pushed for was the International Federation to change the international regulations to enable that to happen internationally too. And the pace of change sometimes can take a bit longer than you think. So we were kind of anticipating this, you know, launching this sort of somewhere kind of at the Olympics. But to be fair to the International Federation, they stacked it straight away, changed the regulations immediately. And so what that worked nicely for us is that at the Europeans, we had female athletes competing in shorts, skirts or skorts. Um, Adidas did a great job in turning that around really quickly to make sure that they had that opportunity to do that. We know it's impacting international teams because other international teams are talking about the same thing now, um, which is great because that's all about making sure that female athletes can perform and, and not feeling as if they're anything else. Um, and then fundamentally, that's role modelling the behaviours that we want to see in sport more, more generally. Tess Howard is one of our um, leading athletes and represented us at the European Championships and was a, was a you know, key figure of the GB programme as well. Um, she's led this, she's, she's driven this actually, a lot of it. She's been working with us around it for the last couple of years. Her research into it is quite staggering when you look at it. You look at the roots and the reasons that we've sort of created kit and regulations around kit. And it goes back to Victorian times when ultimately decisions were made by a sort of quite patriarchal society that you know men wear a certain uniform and, and women wear a different one. And, and we're breaking those stereotypes. It's really so I'm going on a little bit here, but this is it's quite an important, quite passionate area of ours and mine personally, because you start to then go into kind of reasons why people, particularly girls and women, stop participating in sport. When you go into those years around puberty in particular and concerns around body image and all sorts of other things, if we're forcing people to wear something they don't feel comfortable in, that's stopping them from playing and participating. And you look at the damage that does personally around personal well-being 
but secondly around you know, the drops in participation and all the knock-on negative effects of all of that that's driving, well, we've got to turn that around. So genuinely, one of the proudest moments I've had in my career, not, not from a personal achievement, but by an athlete working together with us, with you know the team really coming behind it, England hockey team, but also the global team with the International Federation, very quickly changes taking place to put us in a better place going forward. Well, as the father of girls, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old, I love your passion um, because I want my 10-year-old and my 12-year-old to, to play sport because I see, even if they never get to an elite level, they probably won't. I see all the benefits of being involved in a team, the identity, the health benefits and everything that that brings. It seems unbelievable to me that it's taken this long, Nick. Correct, correct. And and, and that that's the bit. So, you know, the social media posts, if you look at that, I try not to look too much at it, but um, there's, there's a sort of real positive message around it. You know, you know, you know, great, brilliant, well done Tess, but you know, her research and what she's been driving, well done England, all that stuff. And there's the other part, which is why is it taken so long to get to this? But you have to start somewhere though. We're talking to England and Great Britain hockey chief exec, Nick Pink. This is Great British Bosses. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is great British bosses from anything but footy. Uh, Nick, how did you get into then being a CEO of hockey? Because um, you you mentioned cricket earlier. I think you were involved in the ICC and, and you were at golf before that, England golf. Yep. Very lucky, very fortunate, certainly, uh, without a doubt. You know, it's, it's a it's a job I care immensely about. It's a sport I care immensely about. Um, so, look, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, delighted and very passionate about what I do. Um, yeah, I've been very lucky. You know, I've had 20 years or so involved in sport, sport development at different roles, different organisations. Not where I started. Started with Hewlett Packard in a sort of classic milk round graduate training programme after I left university, uh, trying to work out what to do with the career and paying off student debt and all that good stuff that you do. But no, I had a had, was really lucky to work for the Youthsport Trust. So I started there. Um, and worked for the Youthsport Trust for about six or seven years in, in the early 2000s. And, and, and that's where Michael was just picking that up. I think that's where my passion for sport comes from. Not from a perspective, I've played all my life and you know, sport's been a key part of my life. But in those early years and the impact of early year and early year development, and our system in this country is built on a school system. And, and actually, school sport is therefore fundamental to sport and physical and mental well-being and, and all the other benefits of it. And actually, one of my concerns is that we seem to be going backwards in school sport, and yet we're making really good progress in the community of the game and community of sport at a, at a national level. That's not a hockey point. So I was really pleased to get that opportunity because that kind of reaffirmed sort of the, the grounding experience that, that I felt was really important. And then yeah, I've been blessed, really blessed. I've worked for UK Sport for a few years, moved to the International Cricket Council for a few years, um, then got a fantastic opportunity to become Chief Exec of England Golf in my late 30s. Um, and that was a that was an eye-opening experience because there's a litany of bodies in golf coming to sort of to, to drive things forward. So 
a lot of my role was to try and navigate that sort of network of different people, different agencies, different organizations. And then the opportunity to work in hockey when Sally moved on to UK sport, you mentioned her earlier. For me, that was an opportunity to get to a sport that everything sort of comes together into to one. And so actually one of our, we're about, we're launching new strategy. Gemma who's on the call here as our marketing, um, sorry, our comms and media manager is, is driving our sort of, soft launch if you like of new strategy i never think most people worry too much about an organization strategy i do because it's really important we're clear about our vision the values and what we're going to be doing and actually this one sport piece is really important that one team piece and starting to take much more of a bottom-up approach so that actually we're sharing the, the stories of the sport we've touched on quite a few of them today and actually starting to elevate those messages and using our platform to make sure that those are just an elevation of what's going on at the grassroots community level, whether it's the kit changes, uh, whether it's about ethnic, cultural diversity, whatever it might be, using those platforms to celebrate what the sport's achieving. A couple of questions from that, Nick. Firstly, you're obviously a fan. Is it important to be a fan of the sport when you're the CEO of it? And the second question is, is there enough hockey being played in schools or is it just in private schools? Yeah, two really good questions. So, um, yeah, definitely a fan, definitely still play. Um, I've got a son who's 10. Um, he's mad fanatical about it. I've got a daughter who's seven. She sort of dips in and out, but I'm hoping this might be the year that, that club hockey really captures her, which will be good. Um, but, um, yeah, no, so huge fan, played pretty much all my life. I was really fortunate to get into it because I didn't get the experience probably at school until secondary school. So I went to an old grammar school that had hockey as part of its curriculum. So I got the opportunity to play at school and then club and university and everything else kind of followed and 46 still playing, um, not as well, my, some might say not as well as ever, but um, but certainly not as well as I felt I was able to, not able to get around like I used to. But just the benefits that Michael talked to about being in a team, the camaraderie, Actually, it does help in the context of being close to the issues that are, that affected at the grassroots level. So I enjoy listening into them. Don't enjoy some of the debates sometimes, but that's just that comes part and parcel of it. Um, do I think it's important? Um, I think it helps definitely. It definitely helped through COVID because I think understanding what needed to happen to get sport back on was really important. But I don't think it's a prerequisite. And certainly a lot of my peers and colleagues that I you know, see quite regularly in different roles across Olympic, Paralympic and, and other sports don't have that background in their sport or in sport. So I think it's more about how how you are, who you are and, you know, being able to be clear about what you're trying to do, the vision and strategy and everything else that, that rolls off it is, is, is pretty important. But it definitely helps. And then the second part um, in schools I think it's a real challenge for any sport at this moment in time, not just hockey, because we don't have a PE and school sport strategy that we can hang off. So what you're seeing more and more now um, is specialists in sport engaging with schools rather than young people developing those motor development skill, fundamental skills that you need for any sport, particularly hockey, because you need movement. Um, you need to be able to um, have all of the sort of fundamental core skills that you need. Um, and so actually, that for me is the bigger concern. And then secondly, yeah, we want more hockey played in, in every school. Of course we do. But it's got to follow from that point. And I think what we're finding now, or I'm seeing more and more, is there's it's almost sort of a competition between sports because we're trying to get bite-sized time 
of young people's time in school, school not being able to provide a provision for PE in school sport. So we've, we've got to find a, a, a medium to be able to break that down. And when I look back to the work I was mentioning before in the 2000s, when I was working with schools more closely and part of a strategy with investment and structure, I felt that a hockey could work really quite closely with a system that was working, whether it's you know perfect system or not, it doesn't matter, but there was a system in place with funding to be able to access children, young people in schools. We're obviously a podcast called Anything But Footy. Women's football, it's it's radically gone up and there's so much coverage and the success of the Lionesses and it's brilliant. But actually, could that be detrimental to sports like hockey? Schools are pushing football in schools for, for girls more than they're pushing other sports where historically they've been successful it's definitely been thought through it's been considered and all those sorts of things but for me that's why i positioned the two points together that i just made which is let's get children young people playing more sport physical activity developing their physical literacy first and then let's let the sports worry about the sports bit if you like that comes second so for me if there's more young girls involved in sport at schools if it happens to be football brilliant um, if it happens to be hockey, brilliant, or anything else, that has to be a good thing. And actually, if you look at what the Esport Trust, who lead this area in particular, have been talking to, is there's not enough children, young people playing sport and physical activity, um, and in particular, young girls. So if we're getting girls participating in sport, it happens to be football, that's a good thing. And I think it'll have a positive impact for a sport like hockey, because it becomes about choices and opportunities. And if we can provide the right choices and opportunities, and we work with our club network and university network and whoever else we're working with, and there's plenty of community groups and others that run through it, and we provide real quality opportunities with good coaching, you know, safe environments. You know, the beauty of the sport of hockey is that uh, that equal gender piece that we talk to. Most hockey clubs I walk into, you feel it immediately. You've got men, women, boys, girls. They're all playing on a Sunday or a Saturday. You know, there's league hockey, even intermixed with, on the men's and women's side, all of that stuff. So it'll be about a choice then and, and, and what that young person in that example, young girl, wants. When I was at school, which was an awful long time ago now, you had three rugby teams. And then if you couldn't get into either of the three rugby teams, so basically if you weren't one of the 50 best rugby players in the year, you went to play hockey. And I hope that things have changed now and there is a bit more choice. And I'm sure that you've got the data and, and done the research. Did you harness the success of 2016 enough as an organisation after what happened in Rio? There's a, there's a labyrinth of things that go in my mind when I get asked that type of question. Why weren't we ready before 2016? Why weren't we ready at any stage to start? To, why is it that there's a moment that requires us to be ready for any young person or young adult to, to participate in, in hockey? So there's a bit of me, and I remember this from 2003. I don't know if you remember that point where England won the Rugby World Cup and, you know, why is rugby not seeing this big bounce Wimbledon has this opportunity every year with this amazing televised experience, but do we see tennis grow? You know, for not, we don't. So actually, I'm not sure I buy into the moment necessarily, and, and the moment being the most important thing. I think the most important thing is that the structure, the system, the people, most importantly, and the volunteers in the sport are ready to welcome and accept more people as they come through. There's no doubt that there are these moments that we have and there is an impact at the moment, but I don't believe they lead to, you know, transformation in terms of, you know, growth of, ex, you know, exponentially levels of, of sport and sport. And, and there's so many examples we could probably talk to, 
but there's no doubt that it provided an inspiration moment. There's no doubt that people talk to it. They, they reference it. We've referenced it today many times already. So actually, it's about being ready and the sport being ready. And therefore, that comes back to programs, systems, people and all that other stuff that we need to be ready for. So just before John wraps things up and explains the whole bin story, because I'm conscious we probably need to get that into this episode. You talked about Johnny Wilkinson and the Rugby World Cup in 2003. I remember at that time, rugby was the new football. And then the Ashes in 2005, suddenly cricket was the new football. And then hockey was the new football in 2016. Now, women's football is the new football, if if that makes sense. Um, looking at a couple of the other jobs that you've done, golf and cricket, Golf is in the Olympics now. Is that the right thing for that sport? And cricket is going to come in 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 2028. Should the English and Wales Cricket Board and Cricket Scotland come and speak to you guys about how to get a great British cricket team? Yeah, and and on the latter, there's so much networking and discussion that goes on. So it happens all the time. And, you know, and I I speak to colleagues in, in cricket and other sports all the time as well about what they're doing, whether it's, you know, All-Stars cricket, Dynamo's cricket, whatever else is, is kind of going on. So that there's a lot of that that happens already. Um, what do I think? I mean, overall, as long as it doesn't have a negative, negative impact on hockey and that hockey's participation, I guess I'm not too worried. But, you know, I guess I always go into why. Why, why are sports suddenly seeing this opportunity with the Olympics? Um, and what are they not getting from what they're currently offering that pro- provides, you know, the Olympic opportunity, I guess? Golf's a funny one in the Olympics in the context of, you know, there's four major competitions. You've got the Ryder Cup, the Solheim Cup and other things. And actually, you know, how successful that is. It's been back in for two two rounds. So it was obviously 2016 and then obviously Tokyo delayed. I'm not sure it's the success of it has necessarily been felt yet, um, but, but maybe there's an opportunity to do it. But the opportunity I think was missed um, was the ability to bring men's and women's golf together. That's the bit I think, you know, you could see that working really well for a sport like golf and the team sport dynamic that could bring potentially for an individual sport. Um, but they decided not to go down that route. So that that's their decision. That's their, their thing to do. And then for cricket, I think if it's elevating, you know, a sport at that level, which it will do, I think it's seen in that that sort of gender equality piece as well. Not necessarily in terms of men and women playing in the same teams, but the presentation of it then maybe that will help and maybe that will help participation at home and maybe it will help um, what we see in terms of opportunities for young people to access sport. I generally don't worry about those things in the context of impact to hockey because as long as we do what we need to do and you know the game is in good health internationally and we've still got you know huge number of nations that compete. When we compete in the World Cup earlier in the year, you know, there's obviously a European stronghold with the Dutch, the Belgians, the Germans, the Spanish, us, Wales. Um, but internationally, India, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina. I mean, the Argentinian hockey, I mean, the stuff I've learned since I've taken this job, Argentina hockey, you know, there's 280,000 people that play every week in Argentina in league hockey, and 80% of them are women. Stuff, you know, I just didn't know that story when it started. And it's amazing what they put on and how they do it. ESPN is a really strong provider and, and supporter of theirs and has been for 20 years. So a lot of that's televised. You know, it's quite incredible what they've what they've done, and it's not just in Buenos Aires. It's not just in Patagonia where you see some of the hockey and other things. Uh, sorry, rugby. It's right across the country in in Argentina hockey, and just understanding that journey and the impact that's had is is quite staggering. 
So hockey has that real global feel. So I always feel confident that the sport's in a good place when it leads into the Olympics. The good way to finish, Nick, um, bringing it back to the Olympics and that bin story, um, it's, it's, it's quite complicated. We won't bore you with the details, but uh, as uh, non-rights holders, we were not allowed to um, come and interview people on the pitch uh, in the stadium. So we had to interview Sam Quek and Lily Ounsley. Uh, the nearest place you could get out of the Diodora, which happened to be a big gate at the side of the pitch. And there were some bins there and we had to base ourselves there and do the interviews with Sam Quek, who just and, and Lily, who just become gold medal Olympic champions. And they're speaking to me and Michael by the bins. So, a bit um, smelly. <laughs> so um, just on that, Paris next year, if you could make sure there's some bins nearby, then we can, we can we can we can come and meet you afterwards. We can uh, do interviews there as well. Perfect. I don't think you need to get into comparison French bins to Brazilian bins, but but we'll leave it there. <laughs> yes, I think that could be a, a, an interesting comparison. Uh, uh, Nick Pink, thank you so much for talking to great British bosses from anything but footy. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. It's been very enjoyable. Appreciate it. Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.